Thanks, Amanda. All right, before we get started, uh, I want you to close your eyes with me, and uh, don't worry, this isn't like a gotcha moment here, but I want you to try to recall where did your mind go during worship just now? Take a few moments. Where did your mind go during worship? Okay, so remember those things. We'll come back to them later. Uh, I want to share a little bit about a passage that stirs my affections a lot for the Lord. Uh, it's gonna be John 3 if you wanna open up with me. And to kind of set the, set the scene here a little bit, when I was a high school senior, I was actually at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting. And it was actually at a different school, school's FCA than what the school that I went to. The speaker there, he was from the International House of Prayer, uh, based out of, not in Kansas City, but a different one. I think it was in Atlanta, was the one he was from. And he spoke on the bridegroom and his affections for his bride. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of my relationship with Jesus being put in the context of I'm the bride and he is the bridegroom. And it was very, uh, unsettling moment in a way, um, which also this is kind of like, ladies, if you're ever uncomfortable being the sons of God, <laughs> fellas, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, after the service, or after, the, after he shared, I went up to him because I just kind of like wanted to be like, what, I don't know what to do with that really. And he goes, you're Tyler, aren't you? I'm like, yes, I am. He goes, I was in Atlanta in the house of prayer praying, and God told me to pray for a teenager named Tyler for these things. And he rattled off like three or four things. And this is exactly what like, my struggles were at the time, what, what I was longing to break through in. And it was, it was like the first moment where I was like, oh, I am seen by God. Like he wants to be with me. And he's not distant from my struggles. He's here. I think ever, ever since then, I've, I've kind of carried a little bit of that, like a, a more of a longing for it. And it's even like, I've tried to start cultivating prayer room here and, and thankfully like Dawn like took that baton and ran with it. Because it was always something like, gosh, we, we have so much more available to us when we find ourselves in a connection with our Savior in a way that is not just he saved me, but I'm with him. He is the one that longs for me and he's coming back for me because he is maddeningly in love with me. Okay. I think John the Baptist may be one of the best examples we see in scripture of that longing and who gets it. So John 3 is just after uh, Jesus' famous interaction with Nicodemus, uh, the a uh, Jewish leader who came to Jesus in the night to basically confront him and be like, okay, what, what's up with you? What's up with your teaching? I want to know. Like, really tell me what's going on. We get John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, and then also carrying on that we are now in the light. 
that those who are in the light can no longer walk in the darkness, uh, and that we are called to belief in the Son. So that's kind of the, the framework here. And so in John 3, we actually see a uh, change of scenery, and John's disciples and Jesus' disciples are both baptizing people in a similar area. Okay, so before I kind of get into kind of what the passage is going into, I want to offer this. I don't, I'm going to touch on baptism a little bit and like kind of the purpose of it, but this isn't a sermon on baptism. So I might say something where it's like, oh, what does that mean about baptism? I'm not going to try to answer that question. <laughs> okay, so definitely it's probably a good question and it's deserving to be asked, but I won't try to answer that tonight. My, my goal here is that simply our hearts would be stirred for worship, specifically the joy that we see John the Baptist have and how it's so available to us right now. Okay, so starting in verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anion near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Okay, I'm gonna stop. So it's interesting that John went out to the same spot, or I don't know who's, who was there first, but it's kind of funny that like, they're on the same side, right? Like John was kind of saying like, here comes the Lamb of God whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He knows it's him, and yet they're here together baptizing, not in the same spot though. So what that kind of does is bring a little confusion out for people, and I, I want to uh, maybe offer a couple thoughts here that might help us make sense of this. So why were Jesus and John's disciples baptizing in close to the same spot? And also, uh, John 4.2 states that Jesus himself was never baptizing. So even though this passage actually says Jesus and his disciples, let's see, what does it exactly say? Yeah, they were coming and being baptized. Jesus and his disciples went there. So we know that Jesus wasn't baptizing himself, but his disciples were, John and his disciples were baptizing. And there's the scene. Why is this? Uh, one, one thought, so John 3, 5, right before it, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, talking to Nicodemus, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the spirit was not yet poured out in the same way that it would on Pentecost. So water and the Spirit. Uh, I would believe that Jesus is talking about water as in a, like birth, actual birth, as in like, you know, water being broken. Uh, and then the Spirit being poured out, because that's actually, Nicodemus says, how can someone enter, the, enter his mother's womb again? Jesus says, well, you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. So, uh, also in Matthew 3, John distinguishes his baptism of water with Jesus' baptism of the Spirit. So John kind of announces Jesus is coming. He says, hey, I baptize with water for repentance. Jesus baptizes with fire. So we kind of have these, like John kind of sets his frame of purpose here. This is what I'm doing, repentance, cleansing, purification. Jesus is going to baptize with fire. And there's a little bit of vagueness there. We don't know what that means yet. Also, here's another thought, since it says John had not yet been put in prison, and this is kind of what I think leads us well into this. Uh, 
John's ministry was not fulfilled yet. So John stated he, he came to basically introduce Jesus to the people of Israel. So he's the forerunner for Jesus. Jesus wasn't quite ready to take that baton yet from him. So that's, again, this is that distinction. John was here cleansing, purifying with the baptism. Jesus also is like, okay, we're going to start baptizing. And then people are like, hey, what's going on here? Let's go into verse 25. And don't worry, that's like about the most heady, what's going on here I'm going to get? <laughs> it says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over pur purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was, with, who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So here, they're both baptizing and a disagreement opens up. People are like, why is, why is this going on? But specifically, and this is what I think is important, it was about purification. So people are coming to John going, hey, cleanse me of my sin. I need forgiveness. I need, like, I mess up in this way. I'm, I'm you know, a wretched sinner, man that I am, all this stuff. I need this and good, right? That's what John was calling him to. So there would be confusion when there's two baptisms being offered. Why? And I think this is kind of, we see it a lot in modern Christianity too. A lot of conversation centers around what's right, what's wrong, can I do this, can I do that? Maybe even deeper uh, of my own, pumping up my own self-worth. Like, are the things I do, the things I'm saying, how I appear on social media, the things I'm valuing, are they actually about me trying to purify myself in a way? Or is it based off of truth and righteousness and, you know, I think we can suck ourselves into that trap a lot. Uh, so how does John answer that question? If John's baptizing, what's the point of Jesus' disciples baptizing too? And so John doesn't really answer the question, but here's what he says. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So he's saying, yes, there's differences between us. I've had to do some of this purification work before Jesus, and that's where in John 131, uh, John says that his purpose, John's purpose was that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. So John wanted people to come be baptized for this purification reason. But what, now what John wants to do in this conversation, he, he wants people to be drawn to something greater. And this is where that, that greater part comes in. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So, they come to John asking a question about purification. How do we be purified? Should we be baptized by you? Should we be baptized by Jesus' disciples? And he goes, you can't receive anything unless it comes from heaven. <laughs> He 
He says, the friend of the bridegroom himself stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the sound of his voice. This joy of mine is now complete. Where is he getting at? I think this is the, the, the richness of Christianity right here. That every other faith, every other uh, thing we try to do in life is about us having good values, good morals, making ourselves in a right posture, in a way, to appear good, to, to be of contribution to the world kind of thing. And John says, I rejoice at the sound of my bridegroom's voice. John doesn't start just talking about like the great purification that's coming with Jesus. Because that like, yeah, maybe John the Baptist, his, his version of purification isn't quite as good as Jesus's. Maybe that's the way. But no, he doesn't do that. He's not saying, Jesus, you think I purified you. Wait till Jesus purifies you. That's going to be even better. That's not it. What he wants them to, to be attached to is the revealing of the bridegroom. That we are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. And what is the core emotion or the experience that he has in that revelation? It's joy. So the discussion shifts from, can I be purified, to, no, let's be unified with God. Let's be with him, one with him. And this is where I think John's affections, we see them stirred. And he kind of goes into like a little exalt mode here in this next portion. He said, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Talking about Jesus. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Repeat that. Last part here. For he whom the Father has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So there again, that's that. Jesus is offering a spirit baptism. The outpouring of fire, the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So the Father loves the Son and has given all things. What are the all things? The next verse, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The Father has given us into Jesus' hand. That's our calling. That's our promised land. That's our destiny. It's no longer about the things that I can do in this life ever. But just about how am I connected to Jesus? Am I unified with him? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying nothing we do matters, I think. This is exactly why the things we do matters, <laughs> is that we are unified, so therefore, my life is different now. But 
the first question that was being asked was, what about purification? How do we be purified? And John goes, guys, it's not about purification. It's about the bridegroom getting the bride. And what I love about this, this last part where John uh, glorifies Jesus, I think, like my, my Bible headline said, uh, I think it was John the Baptist exalts Christ or something like that, is that we see like a beautiful work of the Trinity right here, of the Father loving the Son, who gives the Spirit without measure, and then we are being brought into that connection with the Trinity, that union there. This interaction is based on love, and all we get to do is step into it. Now, the ending there, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is why I think it's so important that our emphasis is so much on our union with God, even how we talk with other people, other Christians and other non-Christians especially, is that it's so easy to make Christianity about like the purification. And that's where people start asking questions like, could, could God really have wrath on someone who is a good person? It's like that makes sense when you bypass this union with God bit, when you don't have the heart of the bride longing for the bridegroom. Because when it's that, it's like I the thing that I desire most in my life is connection with the bridegroom. And, and sin, things that don't purify, those things break that connection. So that means, that's why I don't want it. Not because it's just dirty. It's because of my connection to the bridegroom. So that's where we need, we need that, that tension there where uh, Yes, we are going to talk about wrath. Yes, God is a just God. And he is so jealous for his bride. That's why we desire that. And that, that to me even stirs my, that stirs my worship so much because it's like, it's no longer me thinking, oh, I'm, God saved me 99% and then I've kind of done like an extra like 1% you know, by like maintaining my sanctification or maintaining my purity, that kind of thing. As soon as I get there, then that's when my ego, my efforts to puff myself up, get in the way. That's why I, I just want my focus to be on union with God, my, my relationship as a bride and the bridegroom. So that was like a quick flyover of that passage. Now, this is where I, I really want like, us to think about like, what, what is John's affections as the one who just got to see Jesus as the bridegroom step into his bride? Like, what does that mean for us? Because uh, it's kind of funny, from that perspective, John, he's almost like, he's kind of like the, the, the best man in the wedding, and he's saying, this is the happiest thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> like, that's... That's kind of weird, I would think. But maybe he has a deeper revelation of this than I do. And he also understands the, the kingdom process here. That also the, the bridegroom is going to go away and then we'll be in a place of longing 
and then the bridegroom's going to come back. And I think that's, that's why John gets that, that revelation here. So, John the Baptist's joy is wrapped up in experiencing this. This is what, what's crazy to me. Okay, so, worship. Worship originates from worth-ship. So what I find worthy, I put my effort into that. Whatever I deem valuable, you will see that. Uh, I like saying it's, it's my inner valuing of something becoming visible is worship. So, you know, that, that can, all of us have things that we love and you, in, in a small sense, you could say like those things that we love, like that is a form of worship. Different than idolatry. But like that's, that's the idea is that when I love something, when I cherish something, my actions and my affections, that's what's going to come out. And this is the great thing about why we see John's response being joy here. We see John value, John the Baptist, what he values here is that the bridegroom and the bride are getting unified. That the bridegroom has come to make this happen. And that's where he's like, my joy is complete. <laughs> and I, I would love to see like actually what he was like doing this, you know, because from what we know of him, he was a pretty wild dude. If you've ever felt like a social outcast in any way, rest assured, you are not the most extreme because we have John the Baptist. <laughs> he was out in the desert by himself, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey. Wild man, calling for repentance outside of cities, calling that kings have messed up and calling for them to repent. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. So with that, how did he, how, what did his joy look like? What would my joy look like if I didn't have my, my uh, meter detecting like people's perceptions of me? Because I, I, don't, I don't think he had a meter. <laughs> he wasn't trying to pick up uh, what people's perceptions were. He was just focused on his his revelation that he had of Jesus coming as the bridegroom. Wow. So what do we value? John undercuts a lot of our cultural values in this one statement. He must increase, I must decrease. Because usually the, the things that orient my life around oftentimes are just kind of the basis of personal fulfillment in a loose way. <laughs> uh, job, ministry, friendship, you know, long-term future family, we're, we're saving money. That's, you know, <laughs> like a wise thing to do, but my focus so much is just on like me being satisfied in a, in a way long-term. But John's statement here, he must increase, I must decrease, should give us cause to re reflect on, on the things that I actually value. And is, it, is there a chance that I maybe need to be a little bit more wild in my expression of these values, if it's Jesus? 
Here's why. Looking at John's life again, his, his life was an entire valley. Like, he, he didn't have mountaintop moments. He was constantly persecuted, outcasted, belittled. His life ended by being thrown in jail because he called out a king for doing something wrong, which he did do that thing. Uh, he was in prison. The drunk king's stepdaughter pleased the king by dancing in front of him. And he said, you dance so well, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that's how his life ended. That was not a mountaintop life. <laughs> that's Matthew 14, if you want to read that in detail. And a lot of times, I, I feel it in myself, like, my personal goals, it's almost like my personal goals themselves are like mountaintops in a way, or even the things that I want God to do. That's like, I'm longing for that mountaintop. And while I th obviously I think wanting good things is a good thing, I think the shortcoming happens when we miss that it's actually Jesus is our mountaintop. He is our promised land. He is, he is the reason why we have earthly marriage. Like, earthly marriage is just a reflection of our relationship to Jesus. That's why God gave it to us. So, my life shouldn't be wrapped up in that. It shouldn't be wrapped up in a single other thing besides my unification with God. Then, from there, what does that mean? And it does mean I am a good father, a good husband, a good servant, a good worker, those things. But my value system is what I think John is calling us to here. So, back to our time of worship. Obviously, this passage isn't actually about, like, a worship setting, and you won't find a whole lot of those in Scripture. You'll find some in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament where there's a congregation of people actually singing together, worshiping, and we see that in Revelation a little bit too. So what does that actually mean, though, about this time? And obviously, I think joy <laughs> is the basis, but even what kind of manifestation does that look for us? What am I literally valuing in the time that we worship together here? That's kind of the question to ask ourselves. So those, those things that you thought of that you were thinking about, reflecting on, were they from that place of joy? And I mean, it's okay if not. <laughs> like, I think every, every time of worship that I experience in a congregation, I've started to try to like, train myself in a way to snap myself back into it when my mind wanders. And it's just, I, I mean, it happens every single time. And I literally mean every single time. Uh, it's all about, like, I, I think, focusing our affections on God, on Jesus, and then, from that place, worshiping. And that's where, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a room together where people are fully on board with this idea that he is our joy, and that like my, my source of purpose, my identity comes from my unification with him as the bride. 
but you can just feel when a group of people go somewhere. Like there's, there's moments where like they're just like etched into my memory in worship where I can literally, like going back to it, I know that I experienced God in a different way in that moment. And it wasn't just because I was stirred up a lot. It was because we were like, wow, everyone's saying God is so good. This is our response. This is my joy that I'm just letting go. So, I don't know about you guys, I think a lot. Uh, sometimes my mind will wander to a certain lyric in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> Can happen a lot, both ways. Song style preferences. Oh, I would repeat that right there. Minor theological perspectives that bug me a little bit, but they're really not that big of a deal, and I need to let them go. Uh, how I'm looking in the room. <laughs> Might call me a sinner. Uh, and that goes, do I look too wild, or do I look wild enough? <laughs> you know, either way. Like, it's about me being fulfilled in a, in a sense that's not connected to my union with God. He must increase, I must decrease. Uh, Bane, how about you come back up? So something I want us to kind of attach to is this revelation of the bridegroom and, and us being the bride the emotion that I see John the Baptist call us into here is joy. And I don't think that's just like a superficial joy, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not happy, but I'm joyful. I don't know if I've ever felt that. <laughs> like like when, I'm, when I'm joyful, I am like happy. <laughs> I'm extra happy, maybe. Could be a better way to say it. I think that's actually available like despite life circumstances. Like some of you guys know, like Chris and I have just kind of been through a season recently. And it's funny, looking back on it, it kind of started, not like this was the catalyst for it, but there was a song that came out called Another in the Fire. And when we first heard this song, sorry. <laughs> when we first heard the song, we just broke down. Uh, and the song was about, obviously Daniel, uh, the passage in Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fire. And there's the fourth person in the fire. And it wasn't even like we were going through anything hard at the time. But we both just lost it. <laughs> um. And losing it in that moment, we're just in our living room. The emotion that I feel I felt was overwhelming joy at the fact that God was with me, that he had been through things with me. It's not, worship is not about mountaintop experiences. Worship is for the valley and for the mountain. And I mean, from that, from that song has, has been like our consistent theme in our life the past year and a half, two years. 
of just like, okay, we feel like we're in the fire, but we're still in it. He is here. At the revelation that Jesus is with us, what is our response? So when I sing songs, any song that we sang earlier, the song we're about to sing right now, what is my response to that revelation? Again, don't make your focus about the outward expression that you're, you think you should portray or what you fear you might be portraying. It is about rejoicing that the bridegroom has revealed himself. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. They had centuries of silence where God had been speaking to them through prophets. Before that, they were exiled in Babylon. Before that, they had numerous kings wrongly leading them. Before that, they were wandering in the wilderness. Before that, they were slaves in Egypt. Talk about longing. This is the longing that John felt. And then he says, my joy is complete. (laughs) He represented that close of the Old Testament. Well, not the literal Old Testament. He represented that close of the Old Covenant into our now New Covenant with Jesus. So what is that revelation? We are the bride He is the bridegroom. He established a covenant with us based upon himself that he cannot and won't break. Hebrews 9, 11, 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, referencing Israel wandering in the wilderness, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here we have, that that first bit was that purification. He makes us right. And then, what is it? What is it for? Why are we cleansed? Securing an eternal redemption. You guys can stand with me. What does it mean for us to be the bride in waiting now? Matthew 9, 14 and 15 says that the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Don't worry, this is only a partial call to fasting right now. (laughs) That's not my point here. But my point is, 
How are you living today and longing for Jesus? Jesus kind of answers here one of those, like one of the basic ways is fasting. If you don't feel those affections for God, just the way to go into it is just fast. Uh, a life of pouring out, I think, is the life that we are called to. That includes fasting, uh, devoted, devotion to a body, a congregation, serving in it. Those are the ways that we, we pour out our longing for the bridegroom to be with us. Uh, I want us to right now even think about the, the ways that my affections would be stirred for God. Uh, for me, I find myself in worship, being on my knees is a really easy way to quickly just get a posture of, I'm decreasing, he's increasing. Uh, another way I, I feel just the urge to put my hand over my heart sometimes, particularly with the lyrics of, of a certain type of song, uh, when it's like I'm speaking to my heart in a way. Uh, maybe it's words that I don't really believe. One simple way to engage with that is just put your hand over your heart and engage with it. Don't worry about you mustering up belief. It's about us being unified, experiencing the bridegroom. I'll pray real quick and then let's worship. Jesus, thanks for coming. We open up our hands to your love and your tenderness towards us, that you have longed for us as your bride. And we have joy in that. We, <laughs> it literally puts a smile on our face that you have thought of us to be your bride. So right now we, we offer this as a song of gratefulness, that you are the one who's been with us, and that you have not forgotten about us and you won't forget about us, that you will come again. And this day we have of rejoicing right now at the truth of your gospel will be even greater in that day when you make all things right and you bring justice to the earth. Thank you, Father, for sending your son.